You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. You know, whether you're an attorney, a labor relations or human resources professional, or even a union officer or agent, if you want to do reasonably well at your job, it helps to stay informed and current on what's happening in the world around you, right? In fact, one of the reasons we started LaborUnionNews.com 18 months ago is to keep people in the field of labor relations current regardless of which side of the table you're on. I share this with you as a means of introducing my guest today. As editor of LaborUnionNews.com, I subscribe to a lot of outlets to get the news, as well as a lot of legal blogs. And I read a lot of articles written by labor attorneys, and attorneys whom I respect as, as well, by the way. Well, though I have a lot of labor attorney friends and have a fairly firm grasp of labor law, there is one labor attorney whose writing always stands out to me, and his name is David Przbilski, and he's with the law firm Barnes & Thornburg. Now, one of the reasons I like David's writings is that although he writes about legal developments in labor law, his writing is always informative, and it's easily understood by the layperson, and it's not dry. Because I enjoy his writings about labor law so much, whenever I'd see one of his articles over the past year, I'd try to get David to come onto the podcast, but as is the case with most labor attorneys these days, they're very busy and his schedule wouldn't permit it. However, with the recent Supreme Court's Glacier Northwest decision, as well as the NLRB's general counsel's attacks on non-compete, I, uh, non-compete agreements, I emailed David last week to see if he could break away from his work to come on to Labor Relations Radio. So without further ado, here is Barnes & Thornburg's David Przbilski. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, David, welcome to Labor Relations Radio, and it is an honor to have you on the podcast because I've been following your writing for a very long time, and I wanted to ask you, other than law school, did you perhaps do an undergrad in English or literature? Because you're (laughs) a great writer. Well, I really appreciate that. No, I went to a liberal arts school, so I certainly took uh, English classes, and I would say Perhaps the most impactful course I ever took in high school was English, my sophomore year, honors English, and um, that professor, or teacher, I should say, was very passionate about writing and impressed upon me good ways to develop themes and being succinct and punchy with my writing, so I think that's really carried through in all my learnings over the years, but I'm always happy to know I have an audience, Peter, so I really appreciate it. Well, you know, and for the listeners, um, I subscribe to a ton of outlets, law firms, all their writings, you know, when I see legal things coming through, I'm always opening it up and starting to read it. But yours stand out because it is succinct. It is not written for lawyers and it's not boring. And so, you know, and labor law can be boring. (laughs) Indeed. To those people who have not been indoctrinated, I think that's definitely true. But uh, no, I really appreciate that. Yeah. So, 
Um, it thrilled me that you were going to come on. And there's a couple big topics that were out over the last couple of weeks. The first of which is the Supreme Court's decision on Glacier Northwest, which was over union sabotage. And I wanted to get your impression on it because there was, um, if you look at all this stuff that's being written from the left and the right and all that, from the right, it's more of, well, it hasn't changed that much. Workers still have the right to strike, et cetera. Um, the left is either, okay, it's not a big deal. Workers still have the right to strike. Or like, like Teamster Sean O'Brien, totally hyperbolic and saying, you know, you're attacking the right to strike, they're political hacks, and basically trying to undermine the courts in general. But what is your thoughts on it? I guess maybe we should talk a little bit about the background of the case, but is it as catastrophic as Sean O'Brien's saying, or is it a nothing burger? <laughs> I think it's a nothing burger, and I think maybe the best evidence of that is Justices Sotomayor and Kagan, uh, both very liberal justices, if you will, who certainly have historically... Um, supported generally employee rights, including in the context of the National Relations Act. They both joined the majority opinion to find that there certainly are limits on the right to strike. And pretty much all the court said in a nutshell here is, look, unions, you certainly have the right to go on strike. But if you fail to take proper safeguards that place employer property in uh, jeopardy and that property becomes damaged as a result of those failures, then companies have the right to file a lawsuit against you to recoup the damages. Now, Again, that's just the right to file a lawsuit, right? The company still has to show proof and intent and all these things. It's still a tough road to hoe to ultimately get there and potentially see some money at the end of the rainbow, so to speak. Um, so I don't really think this is an earth-shattering opinion. I think all it does is it memorializes the fact, which the board, frankly, has held before, that there is limits on the right to strike. So to me, um, I think this hyperbolic, as you said, um, statements from some union leaders is pretty far afield. I don't think that's the case as we sit here today. And I think if it wasn't earth shattering opinion, again, Justices Kagan and Sotomayor would not have joined the majority. There. Well, and as background, um, and it, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it appears as though that the underlying case was that the Teamsters went out on strike with a bunch of cement truck drivers, but they coordinated and pretended, I think was the term the court used. They pretended that they're going to deliver the cement mm -hmm. and then either midway through their shift or sometime after they left the yard and there's a big batch day of, of cement being loaded into a bunch of trucks. They um, essentially coordinated the strike to go out after they had left the yard. Right. Yes. So that put the cement in jeopardy, potentially the trucks, although the trucks weren't damaged. So the company had to scramble to get back. And some of the comments I'm seeing from pro union and more to the, hard left is, well, the the company, you know, should have had scabs in place already. <laughs> yeah, so, they love scabs, right? Right. <laughs> the only time you're going to hear them uh, clamoring to get scabs uh, on standby to help run a company's operations. But yeah, those facts, essentially you had north of a dozen drivers out in concrete uh, cement mixers with wet concrete in there. And I think nine of the 16 or so drivers returned um, those trucks to the yard, but didn't notify the supervisors the trucks had been returned. Now, they left the concrete mixers on. That only works for so long a period of time. So these trucks sat in the yard to the point where the concrete hardened, uh, which destroyed, obviously, the concrete and probably damaged the vehicles to some extent within there in terms of having to dig out that hardened concrete at that point. So um, here, what 
the Supreme Court has said is, look, all they really had to do was notify the supervisors, hey, I'm going on strike. I've uh, got a truck out here that you probably want to pay attention to so the concrete doesn't harden and, you know, damage the product and or the truck. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think this is an unreasonable conclusion for the court or any objective person looking at it to know, look, certainly you have the right to strike, certainly you have the right to walk out. But in the course of doing that, you need to take some reasonable steps to make sure that no property or persons are going to be harmed on your way out. I mean, let's say this was a nuclear energy facility at issue and all the operators walked out mid-shift and didn't tell their supervisors they were walking out and all of a sudden some procedural safeguard falls by the wayside and you had a nuclear meltdown. Now, that's an extreme example, right? But I don't think anybody would be contesting in that type of circumstance that what those people did was not right. So I just think here, if you look at it through that prism that all the Supreme Court is saying, and frankly, what the National Relations Board has said in some prior cases is, look, you certainly have the right to strike. Nobody's saying you don't, under the National Relations Act, have the right to go on strike. But what you do have to do is think about what you're doing and how you're doing it to make sure the employer has an opportunity to safeguard their property and that you are taking reasonable steps to safeguard that property. Well, I I used a couple of examples on Twitter. Now, I'm I'm a former union member, union rep, et cetera, and have been out on strike. And now the strike that I was on was almost 35 years ago. But I recall at because it started at 12.01 a.m. on the East Coast, which went meant for those of us on the evening shift on the West Coast, 9.01 a, or p.m., we walk out. But we shut our machines off because had we left them running, you would have had damaged product. Absolutely. It didn't occur to us to just walk off the job and leave the machines running. Yep. And, you know, because I, and I think it's kind of fundamental common sense that you don't damage the employer's product as you're walking up door. That's like if you're delivering strawberries or eggs and you slam the eggs down on the ground, that's probably not a good way to go out on strike, right? No, absolutely. And I think that to me is telling in this case, because essentially what the union is saying, oh my gosh, you're impeding on us. We're going to be under all these threats of litigation, but at the end of the day, what benefit does the union get by having the ability to walk out without shutting down their machines in a manufacturing facility or walking out with a concrete mixer and not telling their supervisors? The only ability they gain there is the destruction of employers' property, which according to them is not what they're trying to do, right? So if everybody has a shared concern and knows that there is a proper way to do this, I don't really understand the angst around what the Supreme Court found here because, again, all it does is say if an employer can prove that the union and its members failed to take the adequate safeguards, then an employer has the ability to potentially file a lawsuit to recoup damages. David, let me ask you this, and maybe it's um, maybe it's a little broader in scope because fundamentally, if you have a strike that's going on and an individual um, – conducts some sort of strike misconduct, spray mm-hmm. paints the building, cuts the fence, you know, slashes tires. That individual is committing an unlawful act during a strike and can be fired for it. Right. And I guess maybe is the union's concern that because this was coordinated, the union could be held liable as opposed to the individual striker? Yes, I think that is part of their concern. And I think even justices, or I'm sorry, Justice Jackson Um, And her dissent even noted that type of conduct has always been, per se, unlawful and employers could take appropriate action. I think in this case, there are some older cases from the 1950s, like milk trucks in a poultry factory 
where employees left in what the employers claim to be a disorderly fashion, which jeopardized some product that Justice Jackson cites back to and says, look, the board has already said implicitly in some of these older cases that employees can just, quote unquote, walk off the job within reason. And in her opinion, this was a case where it was similar to those cases. I think what the Supreme Court is saying, look, when we're looking at what is permissible in the context of walking out, as opposed to the strike misconduct you just mentioned, Peter, where strike's been going on, somebody comes back to the facility, spray paints it, you know, slashes tires, those types of things. This is a really nuanced and discrete area where how much protection do unions and employees have to coordinate the walkout at the onset of a strike? And that's what this case really boils down to. What steps are unions and their members required to take to safeguard employer property, if any, when they walk out? And that's what the Supreme Court answered for us in this case. And there's some discussion about Garmin um, and it's whether or not the, I believe the discussion was whether or not the um, court should be handling it or the NLRB should be handling it versus the state court, because this originally came through state court, right? Correct. So the Garmin doctrine is pretty unique doctrine uh, from the Supreme Court, as I understand it. I'm going to preface this all by saying I'm not a constitutional law scholar, but I'm a labor lawyer, so I am familiar uh, with the Garmin Doctrine. So this lawsuit started as a state court complaint for damages by the concrete company against the union for those concrete trucks we just talked about where the concrete was allowed to harden because the members didn't put the supervisors on notice that the trucks were going to be left in the yard. So the company then uh, sued the union for those damages stemming from that hardened concrete in those trucks. The Washington State Supreme Court dismissed this lawsuit on the basis that it was, quote-unquote, preempted by the Garmin Doctrine, which essentially what the Garmin Doctrine is, it's an old Supreme Court case that says, look, if conduct is arguably covered by the National Labor Relations Act, we're going to say states don't have the right to adjudicate those disputes. So broadly speaking, the National Labor Relations Act gives employees the right to strike. So if there's strike damage, uh, misconduct, claims at issue. Um, we're generally going to find those to be preempted, meaning an employer can't come to us as a state court and seek damages. They're going to have to go plead its case to the NLRB, which, by the way, doesn't historically offer damages as a remedy in those types of cases. But the Garmin Doctrine actually went a little bit further and said, we are going to determine whether or not something is covered by the National Labor Relations Act by looking at the jurisprudence of the National Labor Relations Board. So if the National Labor Relations Board through its adjudicated decisions and jurisprudence, has found conduct to be protected by the act. That's where we're going to look at the limits for what's preempted. Whereas a historical preemption analysis and other legal contexts would look at the text of the statute, like the National Labor Relations Act. And a court would look, sit there and look, did Congress mean for this statute, in our case, the National Labor Relations Act, to preempt a state law claim? Meaning, did Congress intend to completely legislate in the specific arena such that states can have no say, where in most other concepts outside of labor law, again, outside of the Garmin Doctrine, that's how courts would look at it. They look at the text of the statute. They wouldn't care what the EEOC or the SEC or pick your acronym for an administrative agency says about the law. They would look at the text of the statute. So what's interesting about this Supreme Court case is we obviously have the majority opinion authored by Justice Barrett and then joined by many of the other justices, but Justices Thomas and Gorish, and also Justice Alito, 
went a step further in their own separate opinions where they joined the majority on the result. But they said, look, I think we need to look at the Garmin doctrine. This is unique to labor law. In no other context do we defer to an administrative agency to see what the limits of a federal law are. And with the National Relations Board, for anybody who follows it, they know that increasingly, anytime you have a change in administration with a political party, the views of the board historically changed. Right, the right? pendulum. So, right, exactly, a pendulum. That's a great way to put it. So the boundaries of the National Relations Act are constantly in flux. Typically, I'm not trying to be political, but typically with the Democratic administration, they view the National Relations Act quite expansively, as you know, right? They go uh, pretty far afield, and I know we might be talking about non-competes and some other things in a little bit, to find that the National Relations Act applies in a whole host of contexts that many people never thought about it in a, that type of way before. Whereas with the Republican administration, they take, tend to take a much more narrow view of what the National Labor, National Labor Relations Act covers. So this is going to put state court judges, in my opinion, in a pretty big quagmire because what the current National Labor Relations Board might find to be protected might not be what a National Relations Board for 8, 12 years from now finds to be protected, right? So the Garmin Doctrine... It's pretty amorphous, kind of vague, I think pretty hard to follow because it all becomes contingent on what a given national relations board might find in a given case, if that makes sense. So let me um, let me throw you a, a kind of a curveball, same topic. So the Garmin Doctrine essentially um, sets up the preemption rule, right? Yes. And the Supreme Court is saying, no, it could be taken up by states. Is that correct? So the Supreme Court now is saying we still have the Garmin Doctrine, but state courts can adjudicate claims for property damages from a strike because the National Labor Relations Board has held that if employees don't take reasonable precautions to protect employer property from foreseeable, aggravated, and imminent danger due to a sudden cessation of work, then that falls outside the protection of the act. So because the board has held that, state courts are not preempted from taking a case for property damage when those steps haven't been followed. Now, here's so, the catch, Peter. If the National Relations Board were to come out, and by the way, Glacier Northwest has some cases pending before the National Labor Relations Board right now, so we'll see if this particular case is revisited. But if the National Labor Relations Board were to come out and clarify that says, and we say reasonable precautions, what we mean is they just have to be sure nobody's placed in imminent personal danger on property. That would change the result of this case such that a state law claim for property damages would be preempted. Does that make sense? What the Supreme Court is saying is we're going to allow the board to define the parameters of what's covered under labor law, and state court judges can only go up to that defined point. So I guess... My question is, does this apply to other types of disputes for at state versus Fed preemption, et cetera? Um, and I'm thinking specifically of like California, Oregon, Connecticut, I think Minnesota. Certain states are beginning to ban captive audience meetings. Mm -hmm. And so they're doing it at the state level and assuming the state courts would uphold those bans. Yep. Is there now an argument to say, okay, they can do that? Is this fall even in the purview of Garmin at all? 
That's a great question. So I think it does fall in the purview of Garmin. And I think employers in those states, as we sit here right now, have a pretty strong argument that those laws are preempted by the National Labor Relations Act because Section 8C of the National Labor Relations Act vests employers with free speech rights. And historically, um, and including as we sit here right now, the top lawyer at the NLRB has a different view, but she hasn't got a case in front of the full board and changed the board's view just yet anyways is under 8C, employers can have captive audience meetings. So under Garmin, because the National Labor Relations Board has said employers have the right to do this, I think it's pretty clear under Garmin that those state laws should be preempted. Okay. I was, I, it just As you're explaining that, it's like, wait a minute. Is that going to be, you know, is this going to fall under that as well? Uh, um, it should. Okay. So I'm, I'm hoping we'll see some legal challenges to test it. But, yes, I think it should fall under Garmin. So you just mentioned um, the top lawyer, general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo. Mm-hmm. And she, she since day one, um, has come in and basically wanting to change or shift the pendulum quite a bit with respect to labor law and how it's applied throughout the United States. And one of the things that she just came out with, I believe it was last week, might have been the week before, is that she views non-competes that employers have with employees that they they sign away their rights to not go to a competitor to go to work. Um, she views those as being infringing upon Section 7 rights under the National Labor Relations Act and therefore an unfair labor practice. Yeah. Can you go into that a little bit? <laughs> I know you did a you did an article on it. So I did. Now, the first thing I would say, I'm not aware of the National Labor Relations Board and its uh, near 100-year history taking issue with non-competes and the related state laws that also have been in existence for at least that length of time. So I think back to your point about shifting the pendulum, this is a very good example of how far afield um, we're seeing her push some legal theories. So I think a couple things. Um, one, what she's saying is, you know, Section 7 for our listeners of the National Labor Relations Act broadly gives employees the rights to join or not join unions, and it also gives employees the right to join together for concerted activity, which means two or more, for their mutual aid or protection. So what she's saying is non-competes for employees tend to chill their Section 7 rights because, for example, some employees might want to go work for a competitor as a union salt, which is one they want to go and try to organize a non-union workforce. So she's saying the mere existence of a non-compete might shell salting activity. As an example, that's really big with the sheet metal workers. For anyone who's never been through a salting campaign, they're no fun. Um, but salts will hop from one employer to another trying to organize the workforce, not really wanting to work for the employer whatsoever. They just want to encourage people and try to get people to join a union. So salts tend to target industries and similar employers in a very close proximity to one another. So a non-compete in that context certainly could have an effect on salts. But the caveat being, I would tell you, most people unions are targeting, let's use manufacturing as an example. I have very few clients that use non-compete agreements uh, for the rank-and-file workforce in the manufacturing setting. Many states would actually disfavor it in that context for that type of worker in any event since they don't often have access to high-level trade seekers and those types of things. So whether or not this is actually something that's impacting a whole lot of workers that unions traditionally target, I would query whether or not that's the case. Um She also said that these tend to chill employees, for example, if there's a strike and somebody has a non-compete clause, well, then they can't go out and readily find new work because the non-compete clause 
might impact that. But again, what I would say is, look, in the vast majority of strikes, um, those employees, in my experience, don't have non-compete agreements. Um, they're not director or executive level people or those types of arrangements are much more common. She also cites some other examples, like if employees want to resign en masse to protest working conditions and non-compete might discourage them from doing that. I suppose hypothetically in a vacuum, maybe that's true. It's not something I think I've seen before in my experience, um, but this really is a novel area she's encroaching on. I think what is important to keep in mind here, Peter, and this is very similar to if you've been following what she did with severance agreements a month or two ago, mm-hmm. it's created quite the hysteria in the employer community. She's come out um, attacking a few basic provisions that are often found in severance agreements, like the requirement to keep those terms confidential. But the National Labor Relations Act actually has a carve-out for supervisors. So anybody who is at supervisor level or above who has the ability to discipline, hire, fire, direct the work of subordinates, they are not covered by the National Labor Relations Act. So a director in an organization, a CEO, a CFO, a manager, those are the types of people who would be carved out, generally speaking, from the National Labor Relations Act or from having the ability to file a board charge against the non-compete. And those are the types of people I usually see non-competes for, right? When I'm working on a non-compete right. arrangement, it's usually for the people higher in the organization. So this was a weird one for me just because I don't think um, the vast majority of employers are rolling out non-compete agreements for cement truck drivers or operators on manufacturing lines, et cetera. Would, um, and I didn't read her actual uh statement or advice memo on it, but is she including or wasn't was moonlighting the term moonlighting included in that? Because I'm wondering if that's where, if you look at some employee handbooks, especially older ones, they'll have you know no moonlighting policies. Would that be a, a non-compete? So I did not, I did not recall seeing that called out in this memo. I would say I know the Obama board, for example, took issue with moonlighting policies for the reasons um, you're kind of implying. Uh, the Obama board said moonlighting policies, depending on how they're worded and how broad they are, could chill Section 7 rights for union salts, as an example, because sometimes salts work for multiple companies right. at once. So to the extent Abruzzo has not come out and said um, she is looking unfavorably upon moonlighting policies, I can assure you that she does look unfavorably upon moonlighting policies. And I don't think it's going to be too long before we start seeing the board dive back into some of the standard employment policies we saw the Obama board take issue with. Uh, well, salting is a huge issue right now because Starbucks has been salted. Amazon's been salted. Yeah. And, you know, the whole Starbucks campaign started with the union salt from Workers United. Yep. You know, up in Buffalo. So had, I guess maybe she's doing a preemptive mood move to uh, shield them. I think that's right, and that's a great point, Peter. I think I would tell you anecdotally, um, I've had more salting cases come across my desk um, in the last 18 months than I probably saw in the prior 10 years combined. I think salting is back and in full effect, and it's a very tough issue for employers to deal with because, as you know, somebody comes and they put on their employment application, hey, I'm coming to organize your workforce. I'm going to do my job, but I'm also going to organize everybody. Well, the reason we don't hire that person can't be because they've told us they're a union cell, right? In fact, they've done us, uh, put us in a tough spot because now to the extent you're not going to hire them, you better be sure to have really good evidence as to the reason you're not going to hire them. So I think um, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I think this could be some preemptive moves she's making to try to stave off efforts employers might try to put in place to stave off some salting activity. 
Well, you mentioned the sheet metal workers a little while ago. Um, I, I use this story anecdotally because it was fairly well known in southeastern Pennsylvania. There was an operating engineers organizer who used to go to around to a bunch of mom and pops and literally, you know, if they had a help wanted sign out there or he knew there's job openings, he'd say, you know, I'm so-and-so from such and such union operating engineers, and I'm here to unionize you and apply for a job, right? Yeah. Not necessarily yeah. in that order. Invariably, if you said that to the owner or somebody sitting at the front desk, they didn't hire him. He'd wait four or five months file charges because there's six month statute limitations on it. Yep. And when they were found guilty, they'd have all that back pay liability. Yep. Absolutely. Cripple. They had the back pay liability and they probably also had a host of examples of other people who came through the door that they did hire for that same exact position. Right. So right. Um, that's a strategy we oftentimes see in the salting cases and going back to your back pay example, the unfortunate thing I'm seeing now is the board uh, under general counsel of Bruzo is pushing for full and utter back pay and consequential damages. So not only do we have back pay, which historically we've always dealt with, uh, but we also have, did they amass credit card debt? Uh, were they unable to procure insurance, which they could have gotten through the employer had the employer hired them? Did they uh, lose their car? Yeah, did they lose their car? Are there other expenses, right? So, and on the back pay front, even though we've always dealt with it, she's essentially instructed regions where if a region's found merit to a complaint, unless the employer wants to offer 100% back pay, don't settle the charge. Make them go to a hearing. Whereas historically, in a lot of these cases, we'd settle back pay claims for 50, 60, 70% of the back pay number, right? Um, so it's become much more difficult to settle these cases. And the universe of damages that we're looking at and the dollar figures we're looking at are much different as we sit here today than they were two, three, or four years ago. Yeah, that's interesting. So let me ask you about non-competes from a different angle. Um, her statement is that she essentially believes that they violate Section 7 rights. Yep. Having some sort of rule that you cannot go to work for another employer would be a violation of Section 7 rights. Yep. Does And I think she's... Um, so here's my question. Would that name that same logic not apply to, or would it apply to unions' rules against dual unionism? Now, it's a fascinating question, Peter. To me, I think the same logic applies. I would tell you, and maybe I'm a little jaded <laughs> as a management side labor lawyer, but 15 years in, I think for better or worse, there are certain standards applied to companies and other standards applied to unions. Uh, one classic example I was given this front is union campaigns and what can be said to workers by companies versus unions. Um, you know, if a company threatens to fire a worker um, during the course of a union campaign for union activity or non-union activity, they violate labor law. If a union, which you see all the time, tells a worker, if you don't sign a union card, you're going to get fired once we get certified. Well, the board's never found that to be unlawful. The board says, well, that's because the union can't fire somebody. Well, in a non-right-to-work state, actually, yeah, they can, effectively, right? They can right. go to the employer and say, look, they refuse to sign a dues card. you got to fire them. And under the union security clause, they would have to do that. Same thing with promises, right? Employers can't make promises during a union campaign, but in a union can get out there and promise employees you're going to get a 10% wage increase year over year. We're going to reduce your insurance premiums by 25%, none of which is true in the vast majority of circumstances, um, but I could give you a host of examples where the board has given, shown leniency 
to unions, whereas for companies, the standard is much different. And I think this, particularly as we look at Jennifer Abruzzo, even if that logic could be applied to union dualism or maybe some other issues as well, I see the chances of her prosecuting unions under that theory to be infinitesimally small. Now, back to the pendulum swinging back and forth, has she now planted the seed for the next general counsel to the extent it's somebody sharing a different viewpoint to come and look at unions for those types of activities? You know, in the last um, administration, we had a pretty aggressive general counsel who not only, a lot of people said he was pro-company, I would say he was pro-employee, he was going after unions for violations of labor laws against employees. So I think this is certainly something where she's cracking the door for the next general counsel of a different viewpoint to come in and take a look at some of those types of issues you just raised. Well, I think if you look at the the logic that she's putting out there, that a written rule or a written contract of a non-compete says you can't go out and you know work for another company and it's written, well, you have union constitutions that allow unions to put people on trial for looking at other unions. Yep. Right? 100%. So, and, and it's it's certainly, I think, hypocritical at least. You know, if you're going to hold Section 7 to be sacrosanct, you know, and everybody should be following the same set of rules, then unions should be as well. Peter, I could not agree with you more. I think uh, another example outside the campaign context, you know, employers under 885 have a duty to bargain in good faith. Unions have a corollary duty under 8B3 to bargain in good faith. And the statutory language is pretty much the same, right? I mean, it's bargaining good right. faith. Right. The way the board has adjudicated cases against employers for canceling bargaining sessions or making new proposals when you're far down the line, they routinely drop the hammer on them where I personally have filed multiple charges against unions, some of which have been successful, some of which, to my chagrin, have not been successful, where unions have canceled innumerable sessions, put on last-minute proposals, were regressive at the table, and the board historically just has not held unions to the same standard under AB3. Uh, so call it hypocritical, call, call it whatever you want, but going back to my point, I think, for better or worse, I agree with everything you're saying. I think following the same logic, there should be the same concerns on Section 7. And at bottom, if what you care about is employees, which is what the NLRB should care about, right, because it's a right. statute designed to protect employees to join or not join unions, I think that is something they should take a look at. You know, this kind of always reminds me of, like, the contract bar doctrine and other procedural safeguards mm-hmm. the NLRB has against decertification. I don't know why anyone's against decertification ever. All it does is give employees an opportunity to vote on whether or not they want a union. And if it's all about what the employees want, shouldn't we make it just as easy to have a decertification vote as we do a representation vote? Whatever the reason the employees decide to want to have an election, I think that choice should be honored. And I'm not saying that means we shouldn't have the same legal analysis on whether or not an employer unlawfully instigated that. I think that's all fine in theory under the statute as it's drafted. But I think the board historically, right, We, could, you and I could probably point to 200 more examples for the next four hours about ways the board seemingly places the interests of unions above employees and employees' choices with respect to unions. Right. Well, and, I'm, and I say this not in the political standpoint, um, but it perhaps could be construed as that. I'm, I'm somewhat libertarian. And so if you believe in workers having the right to choose whether they're represented or not represented, then, and if you think it's fundamental, removing roadblocks to the employee's choice should be the foundation. 
right? Whether it's for the union or voting a union out. And I felt that way back when I was a union rep. You know, it's I have these conversations with fellow union reps about, you know, I was in Arizona at the time. It's a right to work state. And I always viewed our union services as a service. And although we could not force workers to pay us, you know, because it was a right to work state, if you're good at your job as a union rep, they're going to want to voluntarily, at least the majority will voluntarily do that. I couldn't agree more. Whenever I talk about right to work laws with people who aren't familiar with them, I think um, I describe it the same way. I, to me, at bottom, all a right to work law does is hold the union accountable for its service record. Because to your point, if a union is actually going out there, paying attention to the workers, filing grievances when appropriate, bargaining fair contracts, et cetera, improving their worth, like you would expect of any other vendor or service provider, then yeah, the vast majority of employees are going to pay into it. But what I have found in innumerable cases, particularly in non-right-to-work sites, is you have these contracts, right, where the union shows up every three years, does a minimal time at the table, um, ultimately takes a deal from the company that, frankly, maybe they could have got better, but they're just looking to get those dues checks, and they're out. And then for the next three years, whether or not those employees have concerns about the workplace or other issues, the union is not around. They're not processing grievances. They're not taking cases to arbitration. They're not listening to the employees. It doesn't really matter because the employees are boxed into paying those union dues, right? And then you got the complicated decertification procedures on the table, which every once in a while, you know, I'll get an email or something saying, hey, the employees want to decertify, but they're only in year one of a three-year agreement. It's like, well, you know, there's nothing they can do. And that's something they're going to have to figure out for themselves, by the way, because as an employer, we can't really be involved in that process. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things having dealt with thousands of employees, you know, they, it, during organizing campaigns, they always are told, well, if you don't like the union, you can just decertify it. Yep. And, you know, I have a, a, I either do it on whiteboard or, or a slide, but, you know, there's a timeline there. And if you get locked into a contract 11 months into the first year of negotiations, and it happens to be a three-year contract, you're now stuck in the union for close to four years before you even have a chance to decertify Absolutely. And, yeah, and and, a lot of people and, don't realize that. And it's it can be a frustrating process for employees, I think. Yeah, I, I get accused of being anti-union a lot. And it's it's not necessarily anti-union. Just give the employees the full story. No, 100%. I, look, my uncle was a union steward at U.S. Steel for 45 years. My dad was in the steel workers for a long time. I have a lot of close friends who are in unions and are union reps and union officials. I'm also not anti-union. But, but back to your point. Right at bottom, I think the National Labor Relations Act was passed with employees' rights in mind. And again, Section 7 says the right to right. join or not join a union. I think that second part of that gets glossed over a fair amount. And I think a lot of the decisions and some of the things we've seen from the NLRB over the years, in my opinion, would seem to be in conflict with that. Yeah. Well, and it, it to me, it goes back to Samuel Gompers, you know, who believed in voluntarism versus coercion. And we're now in more of a push towards coercive type of state. It's not necessarily employee freedom. Agreed. Uh, So what else are you writing about and seeing coming down the pipeline? So it's a good question. So I typically, I do preview some things. I think the next big thing, I think the two big things I'm looking out for right now are one, the employee handbook rules. You know, the Obama board was really active on that front. So social media policies, workplace conduct policies, 
Uh, uniform policies, which we've already seen from this board in the Tesla decision from a few months ago, so I've already touched on that. But I do anticipate there being a lot more decisions coming forth on not just discrete issues, but probably changing the standard under which the board looks at personnel policies. Uh, one of the best decisions, in my opinion, that came out from the Trump board from an employer standpoint was when you're looking at an employment work rule, they're not only going to look at to see, hey, on its face or implicitly does it maybe chill Section 7, but in most cases we're also going to look at the intentions behind the rule. Hey, did the employer proffer this rule to chill union activity, or was it because they had some business purpose in mind? So let's use uniform policies as an example. Um, did the employer proffer uh, uniform policy because it was trying to chill union activity, or was it because it was trying to maintain a certain image, like your front desk staff at a hotel? Maybe a company feels like, hey, we want people to walk into our hotel, our registration desk, and they get a very professional check-in experience versus somebody with 42 union pins all over their jacket. My guess is it's almost always the case that the hotel is trying to preserve its image, so to speak. I think the Biden board is likely to come out back to what the Obama board did and say, look, this implicitly might chill some hypothetical situation of union activity. We're going to find it unlawful. The other big one... I'm looking for the other shoe to drop on has to do with management rights clauses. The Trump mm-hmm. board issued a very favorable decision. And if you're a union employer, this was probably the biggest decision to come from the Trump board, in my opinion, on a day-to-day basis anyways, where it said, if your CBA generally covers or touches on an issue, we're going to find the unions waived its ability to bargain over it, which gave employers a lot of discretion on a day-to-day basis to run their businesses in many circumstances. The Obama board, and for decades, the board took a very narrow position on waiver. They said the contract um, pretty much has to say explicitly that a union's waived its right to bargain on a very specific issue. And the Obama board kind of had some insane examples where if the management rights clause, for example, said, hey, the company has the right to issue reasonable work rules, well, unless that clause also said attendance rules, safety rules, and listed out all the different categories, The Obama board didn't find a waiver. The Trump board came out with a very great decision for employers that offered them a lot of discretion. I think that's uh, top of mind for Brizzo and the agency right now. I think the pendulum is going to swing back. Um, The Starbucks campaign, you've touched on that a little bit. That's Mm -hmm. that's been a fascinating case study uh, going on over a year and a half, uh, approaching two years by the end of the year here. We'll have seen that. That's been a fantastic story to follow from a labor relations or labor law perspective. Not because I enjoy seeing what's happening in Starbucks, just because of all the different issues that have been flagged, from employee terminations to captive audience meetings to employment policies to salting to you pretty much name it of what could pop up. And in our case, with as many campaign petitions that have been filed at Starbucks, we've pretty much seen it. So uh, that's been a pretty fascinating story uh, to follow as well. But my goal with my writing is always just to kind of find stuff that is out there. And I appreciate your comments at the beginning. Um, You know, while I am a lawyer, I fully appreciate the fact a lot of people in labor relations aren't, or even if they are, don't want to read legal prose. So I always try to write about things um, succinctly and in a way that hopefully is interesting to people and keeping them abreast of what I consider to be a hot issue. Well, in that vein, um, and you mentioned what I like about your writing is if you're not a lawyer or not in labor relations, if you're in HR, then your writing breaks it down. Mm -hmm. And so, and I want to come back to what you're just talking about with management rights clauses, because a lot of people in HR wouldn't know what a management rights clause is. 
So a management rights clause is a specific clause in a contract that gives management essentially the right to manage the business without interference from the union. And it specifies a whole bunch of different things. Yes. And so what you're, what you're seeing coming down the pike is that you're going to have to specifically spell out every certain thing that a union waives its right to bargain over within that management rights clause. Correct. And it, most waivers are found in management rights clause. They can be found elsewhere. But uh, management rights clauses generally are clauses that say, hey, the company, notwithstanding anything else in this agreement, maintains the right to direct the workforce, schedule employees, transfer employees, discipline employees, usually said subject to just cause, um, subcontract, etc. So if your management rights clause says you have the right to subcontract, what that means is uh, most arbitrators in the National Relations Board under current law would say, well, that means a company can subcontract out work, even bargaining unit work, um, to some extent. And what I mean by that is you can't, if your, sub, if your contract says you can subcontract, you can't subcontract the work of the entire bargaining unit and kick them out. The board's going to take issue with that, right? But in the absence of language saying the employer maintains the right to subcontract, uh, let's use a manufacturer as an example. The manufacturer has a collective bargaining agreement that covers production and maintenance workers, and it does not have any language or past practice of subcontracting. And lo and behold, it has an emergency need to subcontract some maintenance work to keep the operation running. The union files a grievance in the absence of language. That's technically something the company would have to bargain over because you're taking work mm-hmm. arguably out of the bargaining unit. So that's why companies, when they have unions, like they have a very broad management rights clause. Now, bringing it back to what I think the current board is going to do is under the current law, I'll use a clause that says the company maintains the right to issue reasonable work rules. Under the current law from the Trump board, that would mean I could issue a whole employee handbook with attendance rules, dress and uniform rules, scheduling, all those things. Under the Obama board's rationale, and what I anticipate the Biden board to do, if not, maybe even go a little bit further, was, well, just saying work rules doesn't really mean anything to us. What types of work rules are you talking about? You would have to say attendance rules, safety rules, job transfer rules, any type of rule you could think of, you would have to enumerate. And in the absence of you being specific with what category of rule you're talking about, you would have to bargain with the union over any changes or implementation of a new policy pertaining to that subject. Right. Interesting, because it's, you know, um, educating employees about what happens during collective bargaining and what the language of contracts is, um, oftentimes we'll use specific, you know, here's an example of management rights clause, here's an example of a union security clause, et cetera, et cetera. And I've always found that the longer, more detailed management rights clauses are more effective, if you will. When I was a union rep, our management rights clause was like three sentences. And, you know, it always bite us in the butt when we're filing grievances. But the longer ones are more, with more specificity, are, um, I guess, easier to educate people with. No, I mean, I think that's right. Uh, I think the longer ones with more specificity, I think, from a management side labor lawyers perspective, I would say that is the direction I recommend going uh, since the Obama board, even under the current friendly standard we have from the Trump board. Uh, back to your point about the pendulum, I'd always like to plan for the pendulum being on the union side, right? So I want to have a management rights clause that's going to be defensible regardless of who's controlling the NLRB. Um, but from a 
drafting perspective and efficiency perspective, it's always nice to have a short and sweet one. It's just at the end of the day, legally, it might not get you anywhere, depending on who's controlling the National Labor Relations Board. Yeah, you mentioned something real quick, um, and I want to ask your opinion. on In a management rights clause, it gives you the right to discipline, discharge for just cause. Have And you do arbitrations and, you know, representing employers on, on termination cases, right? Correct. So have you found, and this, I'm kind of sharing my experience, that part of the reason management loses arbitration cases is that when they hand out a contract or they hand out their supervisor guide to managing a unionized contract or unionized workforce, they don't actually go into what just cause is and... As a result of that, you lose cases where there's disparate treatment. And I'm using my examples from when I was a union rep because I could always win grievances over disparate treatment, not well-communicated rules, and nobody in management seemed to know, at least at the supervisory level, what just cause means. And I've found that over the years. No, I I think in the cases I had the biggest challenges when you're proving just cause – which for many arbitrators, when they're looking at termination cases as opposed to a contract and termination case, I mean, they're administering industrial justice, right? So they want you to show as an employer, why did this person have to be terminated? Why was something less than termination not appropriate? So it's a pretty high bar uh, for many, in many cases, to overcome. Depend- and a lot of this depends on the arbitrator, right? I mean, you have some arbitrators who are quicker to pull the trigger than others, but you never know which arbitrator you're going to get. But I think the two biggest weak spots in my tricky termination cases are the ones you just described. Disparate treatment, where a supervisor treated one circumstance different than another. Let's use attendance. Hey, one person was late, you know, almost every day, but they were buddies with the supervisor, and it was only two or three minutes. Supervisor didn't think it was a big deal. Somebody else was late 10 to 15 minutes every day, which I would argue is different than two or three minutes, but it's late at the end of the day, just like being two or three minutes late is, well, now I have to explain to an arbitrator, well, why is this different? Why is being late for this person a big deal, but it seemingly wasn't for this person? That's going to create questions in the arbitrator's mind as to whether or not discharge was truly the appropriate remedy. And that kind of feeds back into the other one you talked about, the notice of the rule, right? Most arbitrators will not find just cause if an employee wasn't on notice that the type of misconduct at issue was the type of misconduct that could rise to termination, with the exception of being, you know, common sense types of things, right? Like if you punch someone in the face, you should right. readily expect that you're going to be terminated. Um, but going back to notice, if employees haven't got a copy of the rule, or another way notice can be disproved is going back to disparate treatment. If they're seeing other people get away with this type of misconduct all the time and we're not holding those people's feet to the fire, well, then are they truly on notice that that misconduct could get them terminated in the future? Those are the types of things that can make a termination case pretty difficult to prove. I tell my clients, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove, right? Um, so we're going to have to have documentary evidence, testimony, all those things come together to prove our case. Well, and as a union rep, one of the first things we learned, um, at least I did in our old local, was the seven principles of just cause or the seven questions of just cause, which is going back to, I think it was 1964, Carol Dougherty, right? Mm -hmm. The companies don't oftentimes teach their their supervisors that. Union stewards would learn it. So you're kind of like tying your hands as management or an employer if you're not, if you're unionized and not teaching your supervisors what just cause actually means. 
And then no, I think, no, I think 100%. I think that's a gap. Uh, going back to the notice and disparate treatment, if you are not impressing upon the seriousness of those concepts and kind of educating your supervisors on what just cause is, those more often than not are going to be your key witnesses in your discharge cases. So if they don't understand on the front end what we need to show, how are they going to know how to approach it thoughtfully and in the correct way to maximize our chances of being successful at arbitration. So I agree with you 100%. Well, and unless you're a huge, huge employer that's got a labor relations department, um, oftentimes these smaller companies just, you know, they get unionized and we're seeing more of that, obviously. If they get unionized and they don't have somebody who's their safeguard, so to speak, on, you know, can I fire this employee or that employee? And if they don't know what just cause means, they're going to wind up eating it at some point. Absolutely. I agree. So, well, David, I've taken up almost a whole hour of your time today. And I, I used to have a mentor that say, is this billable time, Mr. List? <laughs> so. No, I really appreciated you uh, inviting me on. I know you and I have gone back and forth, I think, for the better part of a year. So yeah. really happy uh, we got to connect on some great topics and always enjoy your content, well, Peter. And- anytime you want to come on or if I see something, I'll reach out to you and, and get your opinion. I'd, I'd love your writing, as I mentioned before. So I'm going to put the links in to you and the and the firm. And I don't know if you guys have a subscription um link on there i was looking earlier or i can I think subscribe we to david's writings uh, we should i think um so if you go to btlaw.com b is in boy t is in thomas law.com and click on our blogs link you can go to our labor relations blog and i do believe there's an ability to subscribe there that's where i blog and i probably account for 95 percent of the content on the labor relations right. blog. so um there's a way to subscribe to the labor relations blog i don't know if you can subscribe to just me you can follow me on linkedin um i repost on my content there that might be another good way to get there um i'm pretty easy to find on linkedin i have a pretty unique last name so yeah i'm gonna put the links to to all of your stuff underneath the uh audio portion of this episode but but thank you sir i appreciate you coming on yeah thank you peter have have a good weekend you too bye-bye so that was barnes and thornburg's david prisbilski and as i mentioned during the podcast i am going to leave some links under the audio portion And you can check it out. Subscribe, if you can, to his writings. Uh, Link up to him on LinkedIn. He's a terrific writer on labor issues. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. And if you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Just a man living a one ass stand, I'll tell you what I need. Oh, Black Creek, take me to that place. Wash my sins away. Oh, Black Creek, take me to that place. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.